before Steve comes to preach, let's pray together. Lord God, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for these stories in the run-up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Lord, we know that these are true stories. In many ways, they are horrendous stories. Father, I pray that you'd be with Steve now as he opens up these passages to us, as he speaks to us. Father God, would you send your Holy Spirit to be with him? and to be with us as we listen. Lord, may we see the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And we want to thank you for the sacrifice that he made. Lord, come and speak to us now, I pray, in your name. Amen. Thanks, John. Hopefully you still have Mark's gospel open to... um, Mark chapter 14, I'm going to turn there in my Bible, and as I do, I'll ask you the question uh, this way, can someone who can't or won't speak be a helpful witness to solving a murder? Apparently, if you watch the crime drama Silent Witness, the definitive answer is yes, If you can endure the scenes of a forensic autopsy and see hearts and livers and other inward parts be pulled out of a body of a murder victim, these things provide the the silent witness to the truth of maybe who perpetrated a crime. So when the case goes to trial, it is that evidence provided by the silent witness that is always the key to cracking the case. But there are also times in real life when silence speaks volumes, and we need to pay close attention. Our passage today is one of those moments, as we've read, these trials of Jesus. And in the trials of Jesus, we find Mark making a contrast and comparison for us, his readers, to carefully consider. Throughout this passage, we have seen Jesus remain relatively and conspicuously silent. He only speaks two times, and even then, quite briefly. As I've said, there are times when silence speaks volumes, and we will discover the situation with Jesus is one of those moments. But the section is arranged in such a way that highlights Jesus's faithful and at times, as we've said, silent witness against three different pathways that were taken by the Sanhedrin, Uh, particularly Peter, there's a contrast, and lastly, Pilate. And Mark intends for us to consider and to be convinced of who Jesus really is, to understand why he came and determine what our response to him will be. For in the actions of these three, the plotting priests, the denying disciple, Peter, and Pilate, the player, we see three different pathways that were taken, each one a contrast to Jesus' faithful witness and each one being instructive to us. So before we go further, let's just pray and ask the Lord's help. Would you bow with me? Father, we come to your word now and we do do so with the confidence that when the Bible speaks, you speak. For this is your word given by your spirit 
So would you grant us open hearts and minds to receive it, that we may understand it and apply it and find life in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with the Sanhedrin. Let's start with the plotting priest. If you look again at chapter 14, verse 53, we find this. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. If you've been here throughout the series in the Gospel of Mark, you know that we have been uh, encountering sandwiches from time to time. And here we are introduced to the first slice of bread in another Gospel of Mark sandwich. Um, This is not a culinary presentation, but rather a literary tool that it's used to uh, call our attention to something. There's one story that begins, that's the first slice of bread, if you remember. Then there's a breakaway to what is the filling. And then we come back to the other piece of bread that is the sandwich. So Mark begins with the bread of Peter warming himself by the fire in the courtyard. And he switches to the filling of Jesus facing the heat of interrogation at the hands of the priests and the whole Sanhedrin. So with the element of fire here, you have a toasty, at least this week, as we have the Mark sandwich. Maybe we should have had these at the well, I suggested to Ben. Caroline, we could have had the Gospel of Mark sandwiches on special at the well. Could have been a bit awkward, I guess, but nevertheless. So here we have Peter warming himself. And so we're going to set aside the bread for just a moment and go straight for the filling and return to Peter when we get to the other slice of bread. Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane has now brought him to an unusual legal proceeding where the verdict is already in and all that is left to do is to come up with the charge and the supporting evidence. Look at verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any. So what we have here is the culmination of the plot, which began in Mark chapter 3, where the Jewish leaders began to seek a way to put Jesus to death. Jesus, this evening, has gone from the experience of all his closest friends abandoning him to having his would-be executioners surround him and press in for the kill. These priests have plotted and planned for this. It is finally their moment, but things are not exactly going to script, are they? Note that they couldn't even muster the evidence against Jesus to support any charge. Verse 56, I believe, it says, Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We hear him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days build another not made by, my, by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Now, these proceedings would be comical if not for the fact that their motivation and intent were so diabolical. You see, nearly every aspect of the Sanhedrin's interrogation of Jesus violated Jewish jurisprudence at the time. This is not the way legal proceedings were meant to go, in case we could probably figure that out by common sense. But to give you an example, capital cases required two separate hearings to be held on two separate days. 
the hearings were required to be scheduled during the daylight hours where this one was happening at night. They could not take place on the Sabbath or the eve of a feast. And we know that Passover is approaching. This is the night before Passover. And as you might expect, the bar to condemn someone, especially to death, was quite high and stringent. You would expect, at the very least, the witnesses had to agree. There are a number of examples of this stipulation in the Old Testament, one of which is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It says this, one witness is not enough to convict someone accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now it isn't clear from this passage how they went about finding these witnesses, but as far as putting a plot together, they didn't do a very good job of preparing the witnesses, did they, for their testimony? Because the stories wouldn't match up. Two times it says their statements did not agree. And just one other element here. Capital cases were meant to begin with the evidence that would uh, acquit somebody. Exculpatory evidence. Could you imagine if they had done that with Jesus? The three years of ministry and the miracles and all that had happened. The line would have gone out the door and back to the garden possibly where they arrested him. But that would not have suited their purpose because they weren't after the truth. They were after Jesus. They were out to destroy him. And so toward this end, the high priest steps up himself. He rises from his seat of authority and questions Jesus in verse 60. And he says, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Really? What is this testimony? Do you really want me to answer that? Because it was absolute rubbish is what it was. Why would Jesus or any of us have felt any need to respond to any of it? Jesus was silent. But his silence testifies to more than anything that has been said or taken place in this sham of a proceeding to this point. To the reader of Mark who is familiar with the Old Testament, particularly the prophet Isaiah, this reference to Jesus' silence is compelling and consequential. Jesus, without saying a word, is making a clear statement of identification with a figure known as the suffering servant, as found in Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 7 of that chapter reads as this, He was opposed, oppressed, and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The servant of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is portrayed as a sin bearer whose sacrifice of himself as a substitute brings healing and peace to others. In fact, earlier in that same chapter, verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus' silent witness calls the thoughtful reader of Mark to consider who Jesus really is and what is happening here in this trial very carefully. Now the high priest was not satisfied with the silence of Jesus, not picking up on the significance of it, and so pressed his questioning of Jesus further and more specifically. Verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? 
the Son of the Blessed One. Now throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus has taken great effort to conceal and delay revealing his true identity, hasn't he? But in this climactic moment, facing enormous adversarial pressure, the moment of Jesus' big reveal has arrived. Look at verse 62. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus answered the high priest's question with the clear, unequivocal, and unwavering statement, I am. Why such clarity now? What has changed that Jesus answers so clearly? An excellent commentary. James Edwards has written this. In order to truly understand the meaning of Jesus' person, something has been missing. The missing element has been the necessity of his suffering. Only in the light of suffering can Jesus openly divulge his identity as God's son. At the trial, the veil is finally removed. Jesus confirms his identity as the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed One, and in his reply, identifies himself as the Son of Man, an allusion, a reference to the book of Daniel chapter 10. Listen to these verses there in verse 14, where the, Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. So this title, the Son of Man, points to the humanity of this individual in Daniel, but he is also clearly deity. Because in the Old Testament, only God comes with the clouds. Only God is ascribed glory and worship. So what we see then of the Son of Man portrayed in Daniel is that he establishes and exercises the rule of God, God's kingdom, his dominion, because he is God. The Son of Man is the Messiah, and the Son of Man is God himself. You see, in Judaism, it was no crime to lay claim to being the Messiah. It was seen as a political figure, a military figure. Many would and would continue to do so. But the affirmation of being the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of Man, in light of Daniel, God himself was another matter entirely. It was clear to the high priest what Jesus was claiming about himself. Look at verse 63. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves this question. How many others have taken the same approach in response to Jesus as these priests who plotted against him? How many still take the same approach today, maybe even in this room? From the beginning of Mark through to this trial of Jesus, they had never been interested in considering any evidence that could challenge their disposition toward Jesus. They were simply against him. 
and immovable in their position. Why? Why do people do this? Because Jesus' true identity and claim to rule is a threat to our own. You cannot have two kings on the throne. And so, as they are finally free, as Jesus has said these words, and they see themselves as finally free in their minds, all the pent-up animosity and hatred and resentment begins to burst forth in verse 65. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him away and beat him. From one perspective, Jesus is incredibly vulnerable here, isn't he? In utter contempt. I mean, it's nearly a universal sign of contempt around the world. He is spit upon, mocked, and beaten. They taunted him saying, prophesy. Not realizing or appreciating that all of this was happening just as he predicted. In chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Even in this travesty of justice, his authority is never more clearly on display and we are meant to see that nothing is out of Jesus' control. He is the Lord's servant, come to do his Father's will. Listen again to another passage of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 6. The suffering servant, another servant song. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me. I offered it. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, which is not why I grew mine, just for this occasion. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. His identity and his authority are not in doubt here, not even when surrounded by those plotting against him. They will see Jesus coming with the clouds, as will we. So any resistance to consider Jesus will not have in any way diminish him or detract from who he is and why he came. But a refusal to humbly follow where the evidence leads leaves one eternally exposed and in great spiritual peril. Which is why at this church we humbly invite people to consider Jesus with offerings like Christianity Explored or reading the Bible one-to-one -one with somebody. If you are listening to this sermon as someone exploring and curious but unconvinced, may I challenge and encourage you to at least give Jesus a fair hearing as opposed to following the path of the plotting priests of the Sanhedrin. So there's one. Let's come back and close the sandwich up with Peter, the denying disciple. Now it's time to return to him the other slice of bread in the sandwich that we mentioned earlier. We left Peter warming himself by the fire in the courtyard of the high priest alongside the very guards who had arrested Jesus. 
as we come back to that scene and the sandwich closes, the attention that we're supposed to have is meant to be drawn on the contrast between Jesus' faithful witness that we just saw under extreme pressure versus the manner in which Peter crumbles, as we're about to see. In verse 66, it says, While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went away to the entrance. So having been recognized by a girl who was a servant in the house of the high priest, Peter is questioned by her in regard to him being an associate of Jesus. And he denies any association with Jesus and does it in such a way as to make clear that he doesn't even know who he is. You see, the formulation, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, is a way of both denying personal and theoretical knowledge of something. It's like nothing. (laughs) No personal experience, no theoretical knowledge. I don't know what you're talking about. This isn't a casual plea of ignorance or just brushing aside, but a forceful and categorical denial of Jesus. And so likely uh, fearful of being discovered as one of Jesus' followers, Peter begins to distance himself from the situation by removing himself to the entryway. But he won't find relief because as we pick it back up in verse 69, if you follow along, it says, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now Peter has made two denials, but those standing around him will not let him off the hook, pressing him one last time based on the way he spoke. They heard heard his Galilean accent the region where Jesus had taught and ministered for three years and made the connection. What are the odds of a Galilean warming himself by the fire in the middle of the night at the very place where a famous Galilean rabbi was being interrogated by the Sanhedrin? Stop denying it. Whoever you are, whatever your name is, surely you have to be one of Jesus' followers. And then Peter self-destructs. Verse 71, he began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man or what you're talking about. Don't misunderstand this situation thinking Peter started using profanity here. Had that happened, what happened here would be bad. But in reality, what he ends up doing is likely to be considered worse. In calling down curses and swearing, Peter is essentially invoking God himself as a witness in his denial of Jesus. A false and a fake denial. Peter has completely lost the plot from when he made the confession, you are the Messiah, and had pledged to stand by Jesus' side even in the face of death. He wouldn't even, did you notice, he wouldn't even bring himself to utter the name Jesus. I don't know this man, 
you are talking about. And in verse 72, it says, Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now perhaps you can recall how when Jesus predicted that all of the disciples would fall away, how Peter emphatically denied that he would do so as well. Even if everybody else will, I won't. If I have to die with you, I will. No way. Not going to happen, Jesus. But then the rooster crowed a second time. And the Gospel of Luke adds some poignant color to this scene. Now, Jesus had been in the rooms above. This is like a courtyard, like a villa in that area. Jesus had been in the rooms above being interrogated by the Sanhedrin while the threefold denial by Peter is taking place in the courtyard below. So imagine like a, a square. Jesus is handed over to the guards to be beaten and mocked. The guards presumably in the courtyard around the fire with Peter. As Jesus is being brought down, Peter is just finishing his third denial. I don't know this man having any knowledge of Jesus. And just as he was speaking, Luke says, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Can you imagine that moment from Peter's perspective when Jesus looked straight at him? There's a lot that can be communicated in a look, isn't there? Whether it is two lovers lost in each other's eyes or a mum shooting a mischievous child, the look that says, you better not. What did Jesus' eyes communicate? Pain? Disappointment, anger, resentment. While this is somewhat speculative, I would feel safe suggesting that the eyes of Jesus were filled with compassion for Peter. This disciple whom he loved. It is when we look into the compassionate eyes of Jesus that we are most disappointed with our own failings and broken over the way our lives deny him. In fact, I wonder if the words of Jesus came back to Peter in the days that followed where in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, he said this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Fortunately, we know that Peter's uh, story doesn't end in denial and defeat. In John's gospel, we see Peter gently restored by the one whom he had denied even knowing. Peter, who had feared death in the high priest's courtyard, was once again looking into the eyes of of Jesus. And this time, he wasn't looking at the condemned prisoner being handed over for execution, but the one who had defeated death itself by rising from the grave. As we consider our own failings as followers of Jesus, and we know they are many for each of us, consider and reflect on the approach of Jesus in restoring Peter. Three times Jesus engaged Peter with the essential question, 
Not what did you do? What have you done? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? We are called to love him, remember, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we have opportunity to bear faithful witness to him, we have opportunity to look to Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us and express our love for him. We are weak just like Peter. But through the faithfulness of Jesus and his faithful witness, we can bear faithful witness as well. So the plotting priests, the denying disciple Peter, lastly, Pilate, the political player. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. We should stop at this point now just to consider some initial thoughts on Pilate because Pilate was essentially a military governor for Rome in the province of Palestine and he had a reputation for cruelty and violent suppression of those involved in uprisings of which they occurred with regularity in Palestine. His main aim, therefore, was maintaining order in this tumultuous and complicated corner of the Roman Empire. So every situation, particularly with the occasionally volatile Jewish population, every decision was calculated. He was a powerful political player. And it is to this man that the Jewish leaders needed to hand Jesus over, hoping of having him executed by crucifixion, since they had no authority to do so. So Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? You see, the Sanhedrin had obviously framed the case against Jesus in a way that would make it relevant for Pilate. Jesus had admitted to being the Messiah, the King of the Jews, while under interrogation by the high priest. This could have been a potential concern to Pilate, and so they lead with this. See, others in Palestine had made claims to be the Messiah, and they had led uprisings against Roman rule. So now Rome dealt ruthlessly with what it perceived to be political threats to the status quo of their dominance. But Pilate was also not a newbie, (laughs) wasn't a newcomer or a fool, and likely didn't take this situation at face value. He was surely attempting to sort whether Jesus truly was a threat to Rome or had he been handed over because he was a threat to the Sanhedrin. And they wanted him eliminated. Verse 2, second half, it says, You say so, Jesus replied. A bit of a clever response. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. Well, what were those things? Again, Luke gives us a little more detail. Mark's very concise. Luke likes to expand. And in Luke, it says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation, He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. If you were here just a few weeks ago, we looked at a question posed to Jesus on the question of paying taxes to Caesar. And in his answer, Jesus clearly made just the opposite point of what he's being accused of here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. Is it possible 
or even likely that Pilate was aware of this exchange, where Jesus had so deftly dealt a humiliating defeat to those who now accused him? It's possible. It is hard to imagine that a Roman governor would not have collected intelligence on Jesus as popular as he had become. Remember, he had ridden on a donkey through the streets of Jerusalem. Massive crowds had flooded to him shouting, Hosanna, save us. This was a a coronation scene. It could almost seem possible that Pilate was inviting him to repeat the feat of humiliation. Aren't you going to say something? Either way, Aren't you going to say something? Verse 5, it tells us Jesus made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Again, Jesus is the silent witness to the amazement of Pilate. Throughout Mark, we've seen that people have a response of amazement to the works and to the words of Jesus. Amazement amounted to a powerful response. It was moving, but not necessarily a positive one, as it did not always equate to faith. And here it is Jesus' silence, not his words or his works, but his silence that produces amazement in Pilate. He is in some measure, Pilate is in some measure inclined toward Jesus and sees in him a card to be played in the political world in which he moves. Jesus, remember I said, has enjoyed great popular appeal. It is in part why he's been handed over to Pilate by the Sanhedrin. They are envious. They are jealous. They are motivated by self-interest. And understanding all this, Pilate makes a calculated move to curry favor with the crowds by maneuvering to release Jesus. Look at verse 6 in chapter 15. Now it was the custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate uses the custom of releasing a prisoner as a goodwill gesture to short-circuit the plot against Jesus and score points with the crowd. Now Mark notes that there were actual violent insurrectionists being held by Pilate. Men who had been involved in something notorious enough that he simply refers to it as the uprising. Like the readers would know, you know, that bad, bad thing that happened, the uprising. One of these men, a man guilty of murder, has a name that is both ironic and significant in what it points to. His name, Barabbas, literally means son of the father, Bar-Abbas. Pilate easily could have just released Jesus. But in seeking to play the situation for gain, he will end up being played himself and the ruler will become the ruled. He offered the crowds the popular figure of Jesus, so he thought, but they are stirred up to demand and clamor for Barabbas. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate released Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them, crucify him, they shouted. 
Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged, which we'll talk more about next week, and handed him over to be crucified. There is a profound reality alluded to in this ironic prisoner exchange. The innocent son of the father, Jesus, the son of man, is substituted and condemned for the guilty Barabbas, the son of the father. There is a framework set here that brings clarity to Jesus' impending and horrifying execution by crucifixion. Jesus would not be dying for his own sins and transgressions, but as a substitute for the guilt of others, including you and me. Pilate saw Jesus as a means to an end, a card to be played in the world that he sought to build and maintain for himself. And many churches have their fair share of those who respond to Jesus in a similar way. Embracing him as the way to secure what they want from life. This type of response resembles more the response of amazement as opposed to genuine faith. And when Jesus doesn't deliver as a mean toward their ends, they drift away. Jesus is not a card to be played when it suits us. He is a king to be served and if needs be, suffer and sacrifice for. Make no mistake, there is great benefit in bowing the knee in faith to King Jesus, chief among them being the confidence of your sins forgiven and the possession of eternal life. In the Psalms, David wrote, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. But these benefits come through humble, trusting faith, not self-oriented pursuit. So as we finish, would you allow me, therefore, once again, to encourage you to carefully consider your own response to Jesus. In light of the response of Pilate the player, the plotting priest of the Sanhedrin, and Peter the denying disciple. Remember, At the beginning, Mark's intention is that you carefully consider and be convinced of who Jesus is, understand why he came, and determine what your response to him will be. It's through the lens of Jesus' faithful witness, through his words as well as his silence, that we have come to see his clear claim to be God in the flesh. The chosen king over God's kingdom who was also the suffering servant who would offer himself as a substitution for the punishment of our sins. The plotting priest's response was one of refusal to even consider whether there was any truth to the claims of Jesus. Pilate saw Jesus as a means to an end, a card to be played, but he was not one to be ruled, but one to be ruled by. And Peter, in his own weakness, denied and failed the one who looked upon him with love. That is how Jesus looks upon you this morning. With eyes of love and compassion. Remember throughout all this, Jesus never lost control of the situation or lost sight of what he had come to do. 
From one perspective, he may seem diminished and weak, but from another, his strength is undeniably displayed. His face was set like a flint as he endured injustice and offered himself for you. Will you consider that Jesus truly is who he claimed to be? Will you see the folly of attempting to use Jesus rather than surrender to him? And will you deny yourself, trust in him, and in weakness, follow after him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the faithful witness of your son as he endured cruel and unjust treatment at the hands of wicked and weak men. Help us to acknowledge and appreciate that he willingly accepted this path of suffering that led him to the cross, not for his own sins and wrongdoing, but for ours. Be with us now, and as we continue in our worship, may your word continue to wash over our minds and saturate our hearts that we might see Jesus and glorify him, that we might fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of majesty. May we consider him who endured such opposition and hostility from wicked men that we would not grow weary and lose heart. For his kingdom and for his glory, we pray this in his name. Amen.